everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 115 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope you're doing well. Hope everybody had a good weekend. Uh, hope everybody got Cyber Monday stuff, if you were looking for Cyber Monday stuff. There are a lot of really cool deals out there. Man, if, uh, Mandolin Cafe's Instagram, I always talk about Northfield's Instagram and Peghead Nation's Instagram and, and uh, Ear Trumpets and all that. But man, if you, uh, if you keep up with Scott and the Mandolin Cafe Instagram, you're going to catch all the sweet deals that are going out. Lots of uh, cool sale prices, so thanks to Scott for that. Two things before this podcast starts real quick. Things we talk about on the podcast. We talk about Mike Hunter, who he names as one of his favorite mandolin players who played with Mark Pruitt. Couldn't find any Mark Pruitt music on the uh, Spotify's and such, so I put a link to an album from Take's Bluegrass channel up there, so you can check that out there. And I also put a link to the Howard Levy Jethro Burns album that we talk about as well that came out in 2020. It's fantastic, and you can go right over to Howard's website. Howard's a great mandolin player, too. I got to have him on the podcast. So many great mandolin players. So anyway, thanks so much for uh, listening. Sorry I couldn't get to one last week. Lots of stuff, lots of family, as I said, but uh, we're back at it and back at the early ones as well, too. This one should be going up today, uh, the 30th. And it's the first Friday of the month. Uh, this Friday, that means Bandcamp Friday. That means the artists get the dough. If you go to mandolinsofbeer.com, I've got a link to the guests who have um, Bandcamp albums available, and I recommend you go out and get them. What a great holiday gift they make, the gift of music. Speaking of great gifts, Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. There's a great lineup of mandolin instructors, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, and Chad Manning. Everything from beginner to advanced, Peghead Nation has got it. They got the high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tudes and songs to play. Check it out! You join now, get your first month for free. Go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word. Mandolin beer at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs, they're celebrating 10 years of hand-building microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments, whether for a single source like mandolin or single micing a full string band. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted in mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much to Ellis. And straight up strings. Their secret to a balanced mandolin. That's right. And another thing about straight up strings. First off, um, the science behind the strings is amazing. You really need to go to the website, straightupstrings.com. When you go to the website, sign up for the newsletter that they send out. That's filled with a ton of great information as well. So be sure to do that. And it's a great deal if you buy a six-pack of strings. They're $8.95 a set normally. You buy a six-pack, it's only $43.95. You save $9.75. Get those strings for the holidays. Get them for somebody you love. All right, let's get into the episode. Once again, a reminder, you can go to mandolinsandbeer.com, and I'll have uh, the list of all the song samples that we play and the albums that you can find them on. And let's get into it here. Darren's new album is fantastic, Man on a Mission. Go and check it out. 
Talk to you soon. Have a great week. Cheers, everybody. I'm no stranger to trouble when it waltzes through the door. I've been down this painful road a thousand times before. They say it's all fair and it's worth fighting Man, now it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Darren Nicholson. Darren, how you doing? I'm doing great, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me on. Man, thank you for doing it. You are extremely busy. You you did some gigs this weekend, but just this past Friday, you released a, a, a new album, a new solo album. It looks like it might be your fourth or fifth if you count the gospel album on your website. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, this is... Uh... Uh, exciting time it's a brand new record i've never done an electric record it's called man on a mission and uh, just a really exciting time it's great too man it came out um it was available everywhere on friday all the streaming websites and itunes and all that good stuff and so the first thing i did on friday morning was when i woke up i'm like all right this came out today and man uh, one of the things that i always love to compliment people on um is good tunes those songs are great the whole the whole album is it is it an ep technically or is it just a uh thank you yeah technically it's an ep it's six songs and uh, i appreciate you saying that because i wrote all of them oh so. nice. that was my next question <laughs> yeah wow man yeah yeah especially uh during the pandemic i've really started getting into songwriting you know a lot of people know me from playing mandolin with balsam range and singing harmony um but um I love to write songs too and produce music, and I've done a lot of that down through the years, different, um, different times. But uh, the last year or two, uh, I I've really gotten into songwriting, and uh, that's just uh, it's a just like playing the mandolin. It's became one of my one of my passions. So um, it was a, it was a good way to go in and and bring those songs to life. Who are some of your uh, some of your songwriters? If you had to pick like two or three songwriters that you've been influenced by, especially maybe in the past year or so, we've been working on this album. Who would you uh, Who would you say you've been listening to? Uh, my favorite songwriters are probably you know Harley Allen. Uh, it's one of my favorite songwriters. Um, I love Larry Cordell, Carl Jackson, Sean Camp uh, in the bluegrass world, but um, you know outside of that. Um, I don't know. I love Freddie Mercury. Um, I love, uh, um, gosh, I love Dean Dillon. Um, I love Prince, John Mayer, um, all those things. Uh, I, I just love music. But uh, a good song to me is song, one that that's, uh, you can relate to and one that tells a story, you know, um, so something that you can um, you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes that's relatable to life things you know and uh, those are the ones that kind of pull it that dig a little deeper into the soul into the human experience that uh, I, I tend to lean toward yeah it's great stuff and it I, I mentioned kind of offline there it reminds me of like some of the Sam Bush the classic Sam Bush stuff I think partially probably because of the drums you know what I mean like um, yeah and uh, oh yeah but man just just top to bottom and you know the fact that it's only six songs it's one that it's kind of like a uh 
you, you can listen multiple times because it's just like, oh, man, it's over and just repeats from song one again. You're like, all right, here we go. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You know, the biggest compliment I've got for people who've listened to it is everybody I've talked to has a different song that they like, which is which is good because, you know, if everybody says they like the same song, that makes me wonder, man, did I only – is there only one good song on there and the rest of them are okay, you know? And so everybody seems to like a different song for a different reason and they're all pretty different. So that that's kind of what we're going for. And so uh, um, that's, if, if you like music in general, I think you'll like the album. It's kind of a musical journey for sure. Yeah, I love how you named all the different songwriters too because i'm sure as we talked about mandolin players here in a little bit it'll be the same sort of thing but i just love it's one of my favorite things about this podcast is talking to some yeah. of my favorite players and songwriters and hearing what are the things that you listen to like if we all listen to bill monroe we'd all sound exactly the same <laughs> you know oh yeah and it's so cool sure. to hear you know john mayer and prince in there and you know along with all the uh the, the greats as bluegrass so no i just uh, you know learning to play early on i had great influences and mentors that were telling me you know uh, try, especially uh, you know a lot of young players will try to play like their hero or play like the person who influenced them and early on i had wise um musicians telling me to to do your own thing sound like yourself don't try to copy anybody else and uh you know because if, if two things are exactly the like like that means one of them isn't necessary <laughs> and, and even if i could play just like sam bush um he did it first or if i could play like tony rice he did it first and so there's there's already been one of those and you got to find a way to sound like you and that's what i'm trying to do is find a way to sound like myself oh you're doing it man and then also you mentioned you know obviously you play with balsam range which is another just huge band with tons of great releases and again the same key thing the first thing that i loved um uh, when i heard balsam range for the first time was the tunes i'm like man these are all just great songs you know it's you, like you want to listen through it because there's a story or something to it that that keeps you to the end of that tune i appreciate you saying that you know um i i think bluegrass um especially that i, I mean i the, my favorite thing about Balsam Range is uh, is not the singing, not the picking. It's the songs. That's that's the one thing that's kept Balsam Range going. And if there's been any success to Balsam Range whatsoever, it's been good songs. And uh, songs like Trains I Missed and Richest Man in the Graveyard, Grit and Grace, Blue Mountain, songs I've sung, Burning Georgia Down. What do you know? Just great songs. But I found my way from the hell and the hurt that led me straight to this. Here's to the trains I And, um, you know, I, I think of a band like the Eagles, um, a lot of, you know, you when people go in a crowd, they can't tell you if it was Glenn Fry singing or if it was Joe Walsh or if it was Don Henley, but they know every word to every song because the songs were bigger than the Eagles. They were bigger than any of them individually. They were bigger than the band. 
and that's a band that was that was built around great songs you know that there's a band with a repertoire that's like that's kind of i hope you know that was kind of the what balsam range kind of modeled their thing after you know we do we you know um the songs will will live on forever a great song will will always the cream will rise to the top and and bluegrass especially things over time have to change you know what i mean like i I love little cabin home on the hill and i love singing those old songs and playing them but i i mean it's 2020 almost 2022 and i i I don't know anybody that lives in a cabin you know (laughs) you know what i'm saying absolutely it's, it's nice to sing songs like el dorado blue and and songs that are that can relate to the masses and relate to what's going on in the world today um and and to make it relevant because uh bluegrass sometimes maybe the reason part of the reason that it isn't popular or that it hasn't moved forward like some of the other things is um sometimes we get stuck in that rut of of um you know of um dating ourselves and not and not letting the material move forward. So, well, I mean, for it, for it, it's the traditionalist thing is funny. I mean, I love traditional bluegrass as much as the next person, you know. But, yeah. But you know, it's if if it wasn't for it moving along, traditional bluegrass would be would be you know just dead and buried if it wasn't for bands all the way back to like Newgrass Revival and the Osborne Brothers and stuff taking that and doing it a little bit differently what it might have been looked at you know down the nose by some people initially same with you know probably any band like green sky bluegrass or billy strings where traditional people be like ah i got no time for that but that's how it keeps the music alive that's how people who go see billy (coughs) strings hear of bill monroe or hear you know hear the dillards and go back and listen and discover that music and keep it living you know I hate to break it to these people, you know, I, because I love traditional music. Nobody loves it more than me. But I've also have uh, uh, this thing we call perspective, and uh, <laughs> and like these traditionalists don't understand that Bill Monroe was built the Billy Strings of his day. Absolutely. And so there were people that didn't like Bill Monroe because they were they're like, "Oh my God, listen to that! He's not traditional like the Carter family." You know, they thought he was too edgy, you know, and so Bill Monroe was pushing for something new. And and like, you know, I, I've always said the most traditional thing you can do in bluegrass is push the envelope and be different, because that's what Bill Monroe did to create bluegrass. He was pushing the boundaries. He was new ideas. His influences came from Pendleton Vandeveer, Uncle Penn, but it also came from Arnold Schultz, the black blues player. The, the my favorite mandolin tunes and my favorite parts of Bill Monroe's music are the blues. I love the bluegrass stomp, the bluegrass twist, southern flavor, the the things that have the blue notes, and I love the I love that black influence, you know. And so I love that nothing was off limits with Bill Monroe. He was drawing on Scotch Irish music, he was drawing on traditional music, square dance music, gospel music, but he was drawing on black music, black spiritual music. And, and so, you know, that's like, I, I, that's these traditionalists. It makes no sense to me. I, I think I, I, it's not that it's a human nature thing. I think people fear change. Anytime some, it's just change that they don't like. And they want everything to stay the same. 
until they die, you know, and so, but that's just not life. And the reality is if something is not growing, then it's dying. And if bluegrass, if green sky bluegrass, I love Cadillac sky. It's not, I, you know, I, it's, um, I, I can't play the kind of music that Nickel Creek plays, but that doesn't mean I can't respect it and have an appreciation for it and love what they're doing. And there's a place for it all. You know what I mean? There's a, it, it, we're in a, I look at bluegrass as a really big tent and there's room for all of it. And just because one thing is getting popular or the one thing, it, it may not be my thing, but there's room for all of it. There's room for traditional music. Go to a traditional festival if you don't like it or, you know, but there's room for all of it. And it helps. And anytime that somebody like Billy Strings is successful or a Chris Thiele or, um, you know, Yonder Mountain or Punch Brothers, Avett Brothers, um, you know, um, uh, anytime it only helps everybody in the long run. Exactly. You know, exactly. it's not a competition, you know, yeah, for sure. Well, how did you uh, how did you find yourself playing mandolin? Did you grow up in North Carolina? I did. You know, there's there's a rich musical history here in Western North Carolina. Um, it's, there's a lot of the square dance music. Uh, a lot. There, every event has a, a, a old time or a bluegrass band. If it's the Apple Festival or uh, street dance, street fairs, there's bluegrass bands at every brewery bar. Everything, everywhere is a bluegrass band, and that's the culture that was created here years ago, and uh, it's just a vibrant, um, and, and the, the dance culture too, clogging and old-time buck dancing, square dancing, and so growing up in Western North Carolina, uh, I was born in 83, I'm 38, and, um, and that was just Friday and Saturday nights were somewhere where there was music and dancing, and that was just part of my childhood and part of my upbringing, and uh, and, you know, they considered it all old time country music, bluegrass. There wasn't this. I swear, as time has gone on, there's been more of this segregation of this is bluegrass or this is old time or this is. But years ago, people just played music and you'd have a fiddle and a banjo and a, maybe a bass. It might be an electric bass. It might be an upright. You might have an electric guitar. You might have a wash tub. You might have spoons. You might have, but it was like a, it was just a gathering. You know what I mean? Like people just enjoyed, uh, it was a social thing, getting together and playing music and, and having fun. And, um, and so that was like a big part of, um, the music scene here. And that's kind of what I grew up in. My, my whole family played old time country and bluegrass music. And, uh, and so I grew up listening to Bill Monroe, Flatten Scruggs, but I also listened to George Jones and Merle Haggard. So, you know, it was just an amalgamation of all those things. And, and then it, it you know, all that stuff kind of influenced me. That's so cool to hear that whole, you know, I um I grew up in in Michigan, and there was like there was nothing like that around where where I grew up at. You know, you're kind of like the uh, kind of like a slave to whatever the popular radio was playing at the time or whatever. And uh, you know, it's so cool to hear like some of these rich areas of music. And like you said, everything went like I, every now and again a jam, a guy will bring a washtub bass, and it's just it's just so cool, man. Like what you're like something that you don't think you can make any music from this guy, this guy will make music all night with one string it's crazy right everybody's welcome the only people that aren't welcome around me are the ones with a bad attitude yeah 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> the ones that say this ain't bluegrass or that ain't bluegrass, you know, I, I call them. Um, you know, it's like it's not about that. It's about it's about a community. It's about people coming together and being together and making music and having fun. Now, did you start out on mandolin or did you start out on something else? Start out playing fiddle and guitar, and uh, I didn't play guitar for about. 20 years and I've started back the last several years playing guitar again and having a lot of fun doing that. But mandolin is, is my main instrument and I love it. That's, it's probably my favorite, you know, my, my dad, we didn't have a mandolin around the house. My dad played fiddle and guitar and, um, and Chris Stapleton's actually playing my dad's old guitar now, which is kind of of cool. That's kind of a crazy side story. It's maybe for another podcast, but it's an interesting story, but um, um, he played, it was, he played electric guitar and played country music, honky tonk music like Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, and then played fiddle and played old time music and played like Reno and Smiley and Jim and Jesse and played old time hoedowns and fiddle tunes. So, you know, um, and he didn't really think about it. That's just kind of the music that he liked, you know. And so, um, so I had all this influence at, at my, you know, in my family, in my home, and on both sides of my family. Both sides of my family played music, and and um, there wasn't a mandolin around. And I started playing fiddle. And when I was 14 years old, I got a gig. I'd um, I'd, I'd got an electric guitar. And I'd started dabbling in that, and I, I got a gig um, playing the fiddle. Uh, it was a bluegrass gig in the Nantahala Gorge down near Cherokee, and people would buy a ticket and get off the train, and we would play. Um, they'd have a barbecue dinner, and we would s- stand there and play fiddle tunes and play bluegrass for them while they ate, you know. And uh, and so that summer, when I was like 14 years old, there the man – I rode my, my dad and I rode down there with, he had a tape in his car, this old car. And it was the Osborne brothers. It's a lonesome feeling when you're traveling down a lonesome road. It's a heavy load, it's a heavy load. And it was um, Bluegrass, um, Once More, Volume 2. And it had uh, Big Spike Hammer and My Favorite Memory and and um, uh, Unfaithful One, all these great blue one tier. And when I heard the Osborne brothers, I, I, at that point I was kind of getting away from bluegrass and I'd bought this electric guitar and I was like, I was moving into more like country and rock and roll. And when I heard the Osborne brothers, I was like, Oh my God, 
That's it. <laughs> That's the music. That's what I want to play right there. Because it was it was country singing with bluegrass picking. It had that high energy bluegrass picking, but it had that country twang in the singing. And I was like, man, and the harmonies. I was blown away. And I would ride, I was 14, and I would look at that that cover all the way down there and it was Bobby and Sonny standing there and Bobby had that big old hat on and a feather sticking out of it and these <laughs> sideburns and he was he was holding that Gibson Madeline with these big diamond rings and I was like that looks awesome I want to play the mandolin <laughs> yeah and and so I sold my electric guitar and got a mandolin oh wow and that's how that's how I started playing the mandolin Get and I've never out. looked back Wow. Yep. What was the uh, what was the uh, first mandolin you bought? It was a Harmony. Oh cool. I paid it was I I'd paid $350 for this uh Fender guitar and I sold it and I paid $350 for a Harmony mandolin <laughs> and I still got it. <laughs> oh, do you really? And I took it uh my son who's 20 now, he doesn't know this but Several years ago, I took it to IBMA, and uh, we were touring with Zach Brown band at the time. And I got Greg Allman uh, when he was alive. I got Doyle Lawson, Dale McCurry, um, Larry Sparks, Greg Allman, Zach Brown, ever, and took it to the Opry a bunch. And I've got all these signatures on it, and I'm going to give it to my son one day. Oh, wow. So that's what I'm going to do with that, that, that first mandolin I bought. But, uh, yeah. That's mine. You mentioned Greg Allman right there. And again, that's just a call back to your new album. I mean, it reminds me of like some great Allman Brothers. I'm a huge Allman Brothers fan. So, um, it's again, Southern music, man. Yeah, yeah for it's sure. Southern music. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to say Southern rock because I think it's a little bit deeper than Southern rock. Um, but yeah. it's got that. It's got some of that vein running through it, man. And I just love again, like how that name. When you're talking well, about you. these names that signed that mandolin and that Greg Allman's name, and that's. I mean, he's he was great. I'm a man on a mission. He's a man on a mission. Big dream wishing. Well, you know, uh, all those, all those things that we're talking about, have a, a common thread running through. Whether it's Greg Allman, or Prince, or John Mayer, or George Jones, or Bill Monroe, or Ralph Stanley, there's soul in this music. You know, it's it's all it, you know. You can call this bluegrass or this country or this rock, but to me, um, I kind of lump all those people into the same category. Like it's like that's just good soul music to me, and um, and so you know that's what influences me. So did you have a did did you find that your fiddle experience as as you were younger playing kind of led right into the mandolin, making it easier? It did. You know, the left hand was uh, the same, you know, and what I found was uh, a lot easier about the mandolin was the frets. <laughs> <laughs> the fiddle, um, I quit playing fiddle for almost a year. Um, I started doing baseball. I really got into travel baseball and I, I quit playing music for a year. I kind of took a break from it. 
I tried to go back and, and pick the fiddle back up, but man, the fiddle was not forgiving. Um, <laughs> the fiddle is like, is like the dobro or golf. Like <laughs> you're going to be good at it. You have to do it every day. Right. <laughs> you can't just play the fiddle like once in a while and be okay and be good. You know, exactly. It's a lifetime commitment to playing every single day. And, um, I was so frustrated with the fiddle. I was like, man, I'm just, I was better a year ago than I am now. And I spent another six months on it. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not getting back to where I was. And, um, it was really frustrating. And the mandolin, the, the pick, the right hand just came really natural to me. The bow is a totally different talent. That's a whole different thing altogether. Some people have it. Some people don't. And, um, you know, you can work. It's like anything else. You can work at it to a point. Um, but but the mandolin just seemed like a natural transition. And I wanted to sing. I didn't want to be one of those. I love singing harmony. And when I saw Bobby playing the mandolin and singing, I was like, well, that's the answer right there. Because I like to sing. And because if you're a singer who plays the fiddle, then you're just standing there holding it most of the time. <laughs> right, right. You know, and there's, which is nothing wrong with that. Allison Krauss has proved that yeah. you can make a very good career doing that. Yeah, you know, sure. she, she kills the fiddle, you know, and, and there's, but I, you know, I wanted to contribute, you know, I just kind of wanted to be able to play and sing at the same time. And the mandolin, it just made sense. Who were you, uh, who were you listening to besides the Osborne brothers at that point? Was there any stuff that you were just digging into and, yeah, that that put me down the bluegrass um, rabbit hole again. I started, I started like getting fired up about bluegrass again. I went nuts over the Osborne Brothers. I bought everything they ever recorded. Oh, that's awesome! And fell in love with mandolin, and um, and so um, from there, you know, um, just like just like everybody else, um, my dad. I grew up listening to Jim and Jesse and Flat and Scruggs and Stanley Brothers. So that music was always around. But, you know, the first mandolin players that I remember listening to, um, I mean, Jesse McReynolds is one that right off the bat, I'm like, boy, that don't sound like anything else. He's got his own thing right there, and I, I really enjoyed that. And then when I started trying to cross-pick and I realized how hard it was, then I had a whole other appreciation for Jesse McReynolds and how fast he could do that. Oh, and it's clean. crazy. It's insane, and it's like, you know, it's not necessarily um, – you know, I, I cross-pick today. You know, I cross-pick a lot, and then sometimes I'll actually do the exact Jesse McReynolds style if it's on a song or for – um, you know, a half a break or something like that, just for a little flavor, just to say I can do it, you know, <laughs> right, right. But you know, it's, um, it's not something that I, you know, just really, um, dove into, but, uh, but I, I did study them for a while when I was a young player, I really got into, I love the triple stops and, 
and things like that. So the, the mandolin players that influenced me early on were Jesse and Bobby and Bill Monroe. And, um, and then there was another guy uh, named Jethro Burns who I really got into, and that, that influenced my playing. As, as a young player, those were probably the four. I was just actually oddly enough I was just listening to Jethro Burns right before you and I got on the phone the um Howard Levy the guy that used to play with uh Bela Fleck the harmonica player he put out an album with him and Jethro Burns in 2020 like a uh like a live album it sounds like and I just oh wow it's killer oh I'd love to hear that yeah I'll send you a link to it man it's um I just yeah I was like oh my gosh (laughs) I love Jethro he uh, he was such a player. Oh my goodness! And just a brilliant musician, great guitar player too. And he, his daughter. I live in Canton, North Carolina, and his daughter lives in Canton, and she's a friend of mine. I've I've got to meet her over the years, and we've became buddies. And I I run into her, I see her quite a bit, and just. Um, I just think that's a really cool connection right here in Little Canton, North Carolina. Heck yeah, man! Wow. Yeah. Now, were you taking any lessons at this point, or were you doing it all yourself? All by ear, and and my dad, you know, he would show me stuff on the fiddle, and then I would I'd play it back on the mandolin, and just kind of I was just self taught basically. Nobody in my ma- family played the mandolin; it was guitar and fiddle, and bass, you know. So, then and to be honest with you, um, there were banjo players around and guitar and fiddle, but there weren't a lot of mandolin players in the little area that I was born and raised. Once I got over into Buncombe County in Asheville, um, I was influenced by some of the local players there, people like Randy Burgess and people like uh, Nick Chandler and and um, um, Mike Hunter was probably my biggest influence around here who played with the Mark Pruitt band for years. And Mike is still probably, he's my fa- probably my favorite mandolin player all time, you know. Oh, and, that's uh, awesome. But uh, but a- after the initial diving, I, I really got in, you know, to, to Jesse and Bill Monroe. Um, I-, I would say Bill Monroe is, even though I don't, uh, I-, I consider myself a traditional player and play a lot of Bill Monroe stuff. Um, that when I got older and some of the other mandolin players, the the ones that I heard first who I'm like, well, that's a different take on the mandolin was um, Alison Krauss's record, Every Time You Say Goodbye. And I heard Adam Steffi for the first time. And and uh, I was like, that's, I was like, because it was so in tune and the tone, it was his tone and just the, it was so slick, you know? And, um, and so when, when I heard that, you know, I was like, wow, I really like that. And then, and then, you know, of course, you know, people like Doyle Lawson, uh, I always enjoyed Doyle's playing. Um, but uh, anybody, whether it's banjo or mandolin or whatever, anybody played with Jimmy Martin has that same thing that I, I that my, that what I naturally feel 
kind of, I gravitate toward that. So, so as, as you, what age was this as you're learning the mandolin and kind of really, really digging into it? What kind of age, age range is that? Um, 14, 15, 16, you know, that's when I'm really, I'm, I'm really spending a lot of hours in front of a tape player. It was a tape player then. That's what I was going to ask. Like, well, how are you learning these tunes? It's, I mean, I think tape player is harder to learn than on vinyl. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know what I mean? You play, like rewinding and, play, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. <laughs> Man, you, you. I spent so much time with the tape player. I was like a ninja. I mean, I could, <laughs> I could, I could look at the tape and just look at wh- just about where it is and tell you what song it was going to be on, you know, and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and then CDs came along and, uh, um, then Ricky got back into bluegrass about 96, 97. And, uh, there is a guy from Canton, North Carolina named Mark Pruitt, who, all those years later, I ended up being in a band with. Um, they did a record called Bluegrass Rules. And and I was like, okay, nobody's playing bluegrass that sounds like that. And that's that was the one where I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of bluegrass I want to play. It had the intensity. It had that, that, that particular record. That's in probably one of top five bluegrass records of all time for me. If you want to know what bluegrass sounds like, that's it. Then did you know that this was going to be you wanted to do music for a living? Was that was that always on the forefront then at that point, or were you looking at other things and just just uh, kind of fell into this music as it is? Yeah, I, well, I was looking at uh, other things. I was going to go to school for marketing, and you know, you know, I was like playing bluegrass on the weekends and just kind of having some fun with it. And right before I graduated high school, I found out I was going to be a father. And I had a full ride to the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, which I passed up um, because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got a kid. I've got a kid coming. I've got to go to work. And I went to work for Bank of America when I was 18 years old because I had this kid coming. Right. Wow. And and so this is one of those 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 turns in life where, uh, you know, you're looking at uh, um, you're looking at your life like. Oh my God, this is derailing my, this is going to derail my whole life. And as a, as a kid, that's what I'm thinking. And, um, a kid having a kid. And so basically what happened was I took this job with bank of America and I started playing more music. And, and now I've got a son who's 20 years old. And he's an EMT. He's a firefighter. He's already wow. graduated college at 20 years old. He graduated high school early. He's the most amazing thing in my life. And and he's the reason that I, I got into music. And if I, if that turn, if that hadn't happened, I would have went to college and probably, you know, drank too much beer and partied out and, you know, got some 
you know, menial job that I despise and, <laughs> you know, and just kind of got complacent. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, absolutely. It, it's just amazing that this, all of a sudden I've, I had this, um, this thing that looked like, oh my gosh, my life's over was looking back now. I was like, oh my, that was, that was a God moment. A pretty amazing thing that, because now I've, I've got this career in music all because of, you know, these turn of events, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's wild, man. Just how things work out. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, um, how did you find yourself? I mean, Balsam Range is just like such a successful band on the scene and it, it, it has a catalog of music. How, how do you know, which is, it doesn't happen. I mean, I can't think of many bands that can come out any longer and have a catalog, you know, music so fickle and it, it chews people up and spits them out. You know, how did, uh, how did that all start out for you? Well, in my first professional job, um, my son was born in 2001. I started playing with a, a really good regional band. And then in 2004, I got the opportunity to start playing in a band and playing on the Grand Ole Opry regularly. And that was oh, with wow. Alicia oh, Nugent. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that's so right. For two and a half years, three years, I went to Nashville and played with Alicia and, and did records with Carl Jackson and Aubrey Haney and, and played the, the Grand Ole Opry a lot. And, uh, and so that was like my first, you know, me diving into the professional music world and touring. And then in two, at the end of 2006, Buddy and I, Buddy Melton and I both did solo records and Mark Pruitt and Tim Surratt both played on those records. And at the end of 2006, my, my, you know, I left the Alicia Nugent band and, uh, I found myself at home and at Christmas time, it was in about December of 2006. Um, buddy had called me. He came by my office. I was working at the bank. I went back to work for the bank and uh, he said, do you want to get together and play some music just for fun? You know, Tim played on your record and Mark and they played on mine. Let's get together maybe and have pick a little bit. And so we got together at my house in December and we got together a couple times and had so much fun picking um we're like maybe we should do a few shows like this you know with this band and it was balsam range uh but we didn't have a name for the band and mark said well i've got a show in january and we did a show we did a john boy and billy which is a big radio station out of charlotte um we did their comedy classic it was a bunch of comedians and we opened the show for a bunch of comedians okay no, no kidding at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, and we didn't even have a name, you know. <laughs> and um, and so um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And and then we started. We're like, man, you know, this could be. We could do a lot of shows like this. And and uh, and then so early 2007, the band launched. And um, so this year will be 15 years with Balsam Range and about 12 or 13 albums we did a record with zach brown and john hopkins we did a, a major movie with nick jonas and and uh, paul servino we've done all kinds of crazy stuff that's amazing and, uh, it's uh, it's been a wild ride you just never know uh, where life's gonna take you but just strap in enjoy the ride <laughs> yeah exactly man that is so cool and you guys have have been nominated and and won quite a few quite a few pretty great awards as well 
Yeah, 13, but who's counting? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's, dude, I'd, no. I'd, I'd count every one of them <laughs> if I had them. <laughs> uh, you know, they – uh, we, we were at IBMA this year, and, and everybody says, you know, it's an honor to be nominated, but I'll be honest. If you don't win, it sucks. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been there and been nominated and didn't win, and it's not as good. <laughs> yeah. It's not as good. <laughs> not quite the I, same. I mean, I, I'm just being honest. Yeah. That's funny, man. Uh, this is great. I love your honesty. You know, that we have the, I mean, same thing, like the whole, you know, like just at the beginning of the podcast, the traditional bluegrass thing, you know, I have the, I have the same opinion of that. It's, you know, and some people, you know, some people don't want to say it, but that's what it is. If it, if it's not growing, it dies. And so got to let it yeah. grow. Yeah, well, you know, and you know, that's, that's people trying to control everything. Everybody wants to micromanage and control everything. And Hey man, it's life. Let people do their thing. You know, do your thing. Do your thing. If you don't like it and you want to play traditional bluegrass, then do it. But don't tell everybody else they got to quit doing whatever they're doing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Mind your own damn business. <laughs> you guys also have a festival <laughs> that you guys do, too, that is coming up this weekend here. The um, I should say the date in case somebody listens to this a year from now, but it's 2021 and it's going to be December. Yeah. Is it the 3rd and 4th of December? Yeah, we're actually doing something on Thursday, the 2nd, uh, the songwriters thing. Every year we kick it off with a songwriters in the round thing with Balsam Range, and it's Adam and Shannon Wright, um, amazing um, songwriters from Nashville, Mylon Miller, um, who's written a lot of Balsam Range songs, and the great John Wiggins from Haywood County, who's written so many um, big hits, too. He wrote Tequila Makes Her Clothes Fall Off. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be this weekend. and We'll have the, the Cleverleys are going to be there. Oh, uh, cool. Blue, Blue Highway. Balsam Range is going to do a set of music with um, the Atlanta Pops Orchestra. Um, we're going to do some Christmas music as well as our regular music with the orchestra. And then on Friday night, we're going to do a nine-piece band. It's going to be the five of us, Balsam Range. And then we're going to have Tony Creaseman on drums, Jeff Collins on piano, and Mylon Miller playing electric guitar and David Johnson on steel. So it's going to be like Balsam Range as a as a full-on band, you know. So, it, yeah. If you want to see what like Balsam Range and meets Sam Bush Band sounds like, that's going to be Friday. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I, you know what I like? Um, I found really interesting about your first two solo albums too. Is the uh, again the drums on them? Was it was the was it the Osborne Brothers? Was that the kind of the, the planted the seed for you to do that? Or you know, because again, you know, it doesn't you don't usually hear drums on on solo mandolin players albums. The reason I have drums is because I like traditional bluegrass. And all the traditional bluegrass that I grew up listening to had drums on it. Mm -hmm. uh, all the Jimmy Martin records had drums on it. Tennessee, Milwaukee, Doing My Time, uh, Flat and Scruggs, all their records had drums on it. Um, Jim and Jesse's records had drums on it. Diesel on My Tail, 
all that stuff, you know, um, most of the good blue Rocky top has drums on it, you know, and electric guitar, you know, and it's like, so I grew up, my parents listened to the Osborne brothers, Jim and Jesse, Jimmy Martin. And, you know, it's like, I, I didn't really think about it. I just like that sound. It's rhythmic. I love Jimmy Martin music. And to me, if bluegrass doesn't have a snare drum on it, it, it almost doesn't sound like bluegrass, you know, but just because of the way I grew up, you know? Right. And so I, I get it that, that Bill Monroe didn't use them and maybe some of the others didn't use them, but a lot of them did. So, but that's the kind I like. And so that when I do my solo record, that's the reason you do a solo record is to do the, do it the way you want to do it. And so um, I was like, that's the sound I want, you know? And I think the drums just kicked it in the ass. You know what I mean? It just yeah. gives it that drive. And here's the other thing. When people complain about drums, how much more acoustic can you get than a drum? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's about as primitive an instrument as you can get. I think, I think when uh, the problem with people, when you say drums and bluegrass, I think they think like a, a metal band where there's like a drummer in a cage over the stage with pyrotechnics <laughs> going off. Right. They don't see just a guy back there with a snare and brushes, you know, they don't think about it being a subtle texture as opposed to they're thinking like some rock and roll drummer <laughs> or something, you know, and I, it's just a misconception, but you know, if you took drums out of bluegrass, that means no more banjos because that's, that's nothing but a drum with a neck on it. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the themes that that definitely goes through all your uh, recordings from your solo to balsam range is um, you, you get great mandolin tone. And, well, you know, obviously a ton of that comes from your hands um, and stuff like that. But do you have any recording tips? Because sometimes it's not as easy to make that sound in, if you're standing in front of it, somebody can set some microphones in it and make it sound horrible pretty quickly. You know, do you have any tips for people if they are going to record or do some studio stuff? Well, you know, it, it is mostly in your hands and it has to do with the, um, there's not really a trick with a pick either, you know, cause Dempsey Young, who's known for probably one of some of the best mandolin tone, he didn't use a real thick pick. He used a thin pick, you know? And so, uh, there's a, it, it really, it comes down to your touch, but I, but for me staying away from the bridge, you know, some people stay play back toward the bridge and that's just a brighter, harsher tone to me. And I, the, the best tone I like is more up toward the fingerboard. I call it the little Florida. That's not like on an F style mandolin on the, the little finger, the fingerboard extension where nobody, the frets are so small that you can't play them anyway. <laughs> right. Right. Every mandolin I've ever had, I've either had that scalloped out or scoot or cut off, just cut it off because right there, because my pick would click right there. But that is where the sweet tone is for me on any mandolin is right in that, that area where that little Florida is, is playing up there. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have like, a, do, you, do you use one, two mics? Do you have a preference like for anything like that as far as recording? I've, I've done both. And I, to be honest with you, like engineers and people who really nerd out and geek out on that, they, I'm, they say they can tell the difference, but I can't, you know? <laughs> right, so, right. um, and I'm the musician, you know, but I, I just can't tell the difference and they swear they can. And I, I don't know how much of it's in their head or, or what, but 
like most of the time um, at the studio, Scott on my mandolin uses two of those. Uh, are, are they Neumann eighty sevens? Uh, yep, yep. Yeah, and yeah, and he just puts one on each F hole. Oh, there you go, cool. But live, the guy that I love the most and love his mandolin playing the most is a guy named Mike Hunter who played in Western North Carolina in the old Mark Pruitt band, and he he had a, a the the around the bottom F hole his mandolin was basically scraped off where he would he would shove that mandolin right up against the fifty seven <laughs> or a fifty eight. And he would touch the mandolin to the microphone, and it it just had the thickest, prettiest, fattest tone, and um, and then you know um, I, I I would suggest putting a windscreen on it before you put the mandolin <laughs> right up to the mic. But, yeah. but he didn't care, you know. He didn't. He had to actually put two pieces of duct tape over the f hole because it was eating through the wood. Wow. Um, two right on each side of that f hole, but you know it. When I mic it live, I like to use that bottom F hole, you know, and uh, but but in the studio, um, I, I've done it with one microphone or, or two, and and I can't I can't really tell the difference. I mean, you know. Yeah, I wish I had like an ear for. I, I'm yeah. you know people are like oh yeah you hear the compression I'm like no. <laughs> How yeah, about I now? Know. I, no. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't I'm I'm doing my best to get this thing in tune. <laughs> yeah, Give me a break. Exactly. Yeah, that's wild. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit more about a, a little bit more about gear. What's your uh, what's your current number one mandolin? I've got a Duff A style A five um, uh, built by Paul Duff. He's a mandolin or uh, Australian mandolin builder and. Uh, it's probably my favorite one I've ever owned, um, and I've got a couple of spares. I've got a, um, I've got my Gibson F5G that I've played for a long, long time. Steve Sutton bought that mandolin for me at a, a music store here in Waynesville, North Carolina, and uh, that was that's been my primary road mandolin since 2003 or four. And uh, man, it looks like it's been through a war uh, <laughs> it, it has it's had a lot of be- it's had a lot of beer spilled in it and on it and uh, i broke the little scroll the ear off the bill monroe ear uh that he broke off i broke it off twice oh no kidding and it, and yeah it broke in two different places but the same break you know but uh um i've glued it back on twice and uh so i've got that gibson f5g and then i've got another um f style mandolin that's a um a builder in Morganton, North Carolina named Rick Metcalf. And I played it on the road for several years and I, I've got it and I like it a lot too. Then they're all great, but they're all different, you know, but I like the Duff because I really like that low end. Um, some mandolin players like mid rangey mandolins because they do cut a microphone, a mid rangey kind of mandolin with that traditional Gibson kind of tone. They really peer, they cut through a microphone, but I like that deeper, I like that thud. I like that deeper cho- chocolatey, like a, just that darker. A mandolin's so high pitched anyway. You know what I mean? Like they're so they're bright anyway. I want something that's got a little deeper sound. So uh, I like that. You brought me through with like a uh, mandolin crisis there at IBMA. I ran into you um, after I was in a 
let's say a terrible jam. It was a fun jam, but I was just bombarded by banjos and in an elevator hallway and I couldn't hear anything. I'm like, Oh my God, I can't. And you played my duff and you're like, this is a real good mandolin. <laughs> I'm like, that's a great mandolin. Yeah, I, lo- oh, I love it. Mandolin. Yeah. I just, I was like, so, you know, you get in those jams are just so loud and nobody's quieting down for breaks and you're just like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, you, you can't fight it. You know, as a younger player, I would try to get as loud as everybody else. And then I end up playing bad because I'm fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're, you know, my hands just won't do, you know, you, pra- I, I would have this thing where I would practice at home or practice with a record and I would play this stuff. I would pull off all kinds of stuff and then get in a jam where people are loud. And it's like, I'm like, I can play, I'm so much better at home. Why can't I play this good in a jam, you know? And then, and then you realize that you've got a, um, less is more. You get to that point of diminished return where you're fighting so hard that you're not playing your good stuff. So it's, you know, it's better to lighten up and, and, um, you know, or just not always take a break. Sometimes I've, I figured out it's, I'll just pass. Yeah. Same as that. That's where I got to. <laughs> I was like, I can't yeah. take it anymore, man. Yeah. Same thing with like playing around one mic sometimes too is tough. Like you work, you know, I don't practice at home where I'm holding my <laughs> mandolin. Instrument up in the air. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's so everything I worked exactly. on is gone. <laughs> That's a good point too, because practice, like practice at home, like you're going to play out. Right, right. If you, if you want to play out, you know what I mean. When I play at home, I play like I'm gonna. I remember as a kid, I would, I would, I would put my um, CD player on, but I would stand there with my strap on, the with the mandolin strapped on, and and I would play like I was playing into a microphone. Oh, that's awesome! You know? That's a great idea. And, because, you know, you get on stage and all of a sudden the mandolin's in a di- different position. Your hands are in a different position because you're not sitting in a chair, you know, or sitting in front of a stereo, you know. And it's like, and then you know, the, the same thing with like holding the mandolin up, you know, like Ronnie McCurry wears his mandolin real high and plays it high. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, 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 I, and I have noticed, depending on the length of my strap, I play a different style. If I pl- if I wear my mandolin high, I end up playing more like I end up playing more Monroe stuff. I end up playing more of that those kind of licks and more of that style and more of a um I end up sounding more like that. I don't know why. Um, but it's just easier my hands go that way. Uh when I hold the mandolin up high, but you know, uh, yeah, it's it's totally different something to think about yeah and you also um you also play a lighter pick than than um one would lead to th- lead to believe and you and alan bybee both use those delrin uh picks man you use a, a little bit lighter than him but you you gave me one of those and i went home and and bought a bag of them <laughs> the, yeah as soon as i got home from ibma it really does make a uh you had a really good point you can kind of dig in and you have a little bit of that give you can play a little harder you know yeah yeah. Oh, you can't play. You can't play hard with a thick pick, you know. And I want to. And I want to play hard, you know. And uh, and um, it, and part of it is like I used to use a tri point, you know. And um, that uh, when I started playing guitar a lot, I used a teardrop, and all of a sudden the tri point felt funny to me. So I had to. I'm like, I've got to use the same pick on both instruments, whatever it is. And so I just, I changed picks and went to more of a point, but Adam Steffi uses that, you know, he uses a point, 
And I, you know, I thought maybe I was like, how's he getting that real soft tone with a point? But it's the angle that you, which you hold your pick, you know, it's all has to do with the pick angle. And when it's a slow song, I'll change the angle of my pick. And, uh, but the reality is, you know, those expensive picks, I hate tortoise. I absolutely hate it. One, I don't like the way it sounds. It sounds like, um, it sounds harsh and brash to me. Um, but, um, it, they, they would chip and break. We played a barbecue place and we played seven nights a week. And if you've got a pick like that, you're always having to polish it and work on it. And, and it's like, I, that was such a pain in the butt. It's like, why, you know, it, if you're playing one theater once a month, it's fine. But when you're playing seven nights a week and doing lunch shows and dinner shows, when you're an actual working musician and play more than once a month, you know, you got to have something. That I, I was like, I want to, I want to buy a pick, a pick that I can buy a bag of them, and just when I'm done with it, throw it away. Right. You know. Right. I've always and and it's something that's cheap too, where it's not fifty dollars a pick. Where if I've lost it. You know, I've lost $50. I want something that's a nickel and I can get a hundred of them, you know? And it's, they're surprisingly consistent um, when you get they're them. They're like, Yeah, it was yeah. wild, man. I oh, thought like, oh, well, uh, do you have to find the good one? No, nah, they all sound pretty much the same. <laughs> mine's mine's the same. It's, it's the same. Um, mine's actually a little thicker than Sam. Sam uses a Fender Heavy. Right, right. And what I love, too, is you can – I've been also using the point, but then when you go to, like, some slow tremolo sort of stuff, you can just kind of spin it around, hit the edge or the corner, and there you go, man. Now you got, like, the – A little softer – you got that round, softer tone. Yeah, I do that. I do it, too, you know. And and then when they wear out, you know, just throw them away or give them away. Or if there's a kid around or something, if I see a kid in the audience, I'll say, hey, here's a pick, and pass it on. Maybe get – you know, maybe they want to pick someday or something, well, I got two more questions for you here. This has been a blast. Right. Again, man well, thanks, on a mission. Oh, man, thank you. And just a reminder before I forget, Man on a Mission is out and it's available everywhere. I highly recommend everybody going out and getting it. Um, and the, the first question I have for you is um, if you had 10 minutes a day to just pick your mandolin, what would you work on? Because I think a lot of people always feel like they can never get better. And I'm a firm believer in even if you pick it up for 10 minutes a day, you're going to get better at whatever it is you're working on. If you focus, um, probably my chop and and playing and playing rhythmically, you know. How would you work on your chop? Uh, just trying to get it even, consistent, and 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 um, and the, and not muted. A lot of a, a lot of young mandolin players or modern mandolin players, it just sounds like you've put your hand across the strings and just, you know, it's more of a percussive thing. It's like a you know, as opposed to hearing the chord. And, and then the opposite of that is Bill Monroe, who would let the chord ring sometimes too long where the chord <laughs> rings into itself. You know what I mean? Right, and yeah. It, it sounds like it's dragging, whether it's dragging or not. But somebody like Doyle Lawson, who, or um, I always liked his chop, or, um, you know, uh, Alan Bobby's got a good chop, or, uh, you know, uh, you know, where you can still hear the, you can hear the, it's a percussive chop, but you can still hear the chord. Yeah. It's almost like a cowbell in a, to yeah. me, in a sense. It's got yeah. that 
tonk, you know what I mean, where you can hear what yeah. chord it is, but it it, it kind of comes and goes. It's letting it ring, but not too long, and 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 uh, depends on you know the tempo of the song and the feel you want. Sometimes you want that long ringing drawn out. I'll change my chop up depending on what song I'm playing. I pl- I try to play the chop that fits that particular song. And then you're not you're not a beer drinker any longer. Um, but so, no. so did you have one though? Did you have one that you uh, that you really enjoyed that was your beer? I like all the Mexican beers, man. I like Dos Equis and oh, yeah. Corona. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I liked I liked all those. Um, uh, as far as a NASCAR beer, um, I drank a lot of Bush Light early on. <laughs> yeah, as far as a micro brewed beer, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what I. It's been a while. Um, what was my favorite? There was a. Um, I'd say the Green Man Pale Ale from Green Man Brewing in Nashville. That's a great one. I've never heard NASCAR beers, by the way. That's my new favorite thing right there. (laughs) As far as NASCAR beers go. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I wasn't a beer snob. I liked about every kind of – I liked every beer I ever met. Yeah, buddy, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. uh, I don't drink. I don't drink anymore. But uh, so that that would lead me my my next question then would be for people who don't drink is do you have a favorite fiddle tune to play? Do I have a favorite fiddle tune? Hmm. Man, favorite fiddle tune. I like some of the old ones, man. I like Old Joe Clark and Boiling Cabbage Down, and I like. Cherokee Shuffle. I like uh, Lost Indian. I like all the ones that have a good beat to them, good dance beat. Well, Darren, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? Um, DarrenNicholson.net, D-A-R-R-E-N, Nicholson like Jack, uh, .net. And uh, my MySpace is a uh, national disaster. It's a national disgrace. Uh, don't check out my MySpace page, for God's sake. <laughs> well, I'll have links for everybody. Um, and go all, all, all the, I mean, Balsam Range, all the stuff's great. Your solo albums are fantastic. It's It was a pleasure to meet you well, at thanks. IBMA, and it was a pleasure to uh, to talk to you today, man. Thank you so much for, for taking uh, the time. Thanks, Daniel. For Mandolin Nuts, I do have an instrumental mandolin record. Um that I that came out in 2019. Yeah, is it Fred, Fred Spell? Fret a spell, yeah, and it was it's very traditional bluegrass. Um, it's the only solo record I've done that didn't have drums on it. We did, there's no drums on that one, so um, that's the only one where Bill Monroe didn't have to spin in his grave. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, we did it uh, myself. Um, Mark Pruitt, Hunter Berry played the fiddle, Steve Lewis played guitar. And we just lost the great Jason Moore. Yeah. And Jason, uh. Jason played bass on that record. He's one of my favorite musicians and people in the whole world. And, uh, and I was, Mark was over at the house the other night. He was talking about Jason. And I was like, you know, I was like, what about that day we spent in the studio doing that instrumental record? And Mark, he's like, man, I totally forgot we did that, you know? And, uh, and we we're just talking about um, how great it was to get to play with him, um, whether it was live or in the studio, and and um, and so I just uh, my heart goes out to his family. But I, I I enjoyed doing that recording, and I'm so grateful I got to record with him and and do a record. And I, it's a fire breathing mandolin record. So if you mandolin players out there, it's a 
it's got Roanoke and uh, Rawhide and a, and a bunch of those kind of tunes on it. Yeah, the whole thing is killer. That Kansas City Kitty is on there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool, man. Well, Darren, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Daniel. I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday, and uh, thanks so much for chatting with me. All right, thanks so much to Darren. Go out and check his new album, and uh, let's listen to a little bit of Rawhide from that Freda spell. Cheers, everybody. Mm-hmm.